there are lots of reasons I'm not a Muslim, but what I've tried to do within the confines of this lesson is zoom in on the core reason for me, the biggest intellectual obstacle to me being a Muslim. And that is one of historical accuracy. That reason stands out from all the others for me. <clears throat> the reason why is, well, let me give you an example from my life as a trial lawyer. Frequently in a trial, I'll be trying to look for some historical information or testimony. And I'll find a witness that says one thing under oath, but then two or three years later, when the case is being tried, the testimony has shifted a little bit to better suit the case that's being presented. Or sometimes a, a witness will give a statement or write an email or give uh, some type of a recorded of course of events, and then when I get around two, three, four, five, sometimes ten, sometimes twenty years later, to asking that person, the memory seems to have shifted dramatically from what they wrote twenty years before. And it always seems to shift in a way that would benefit them or whoever they're a representative of. In the lawsuit, it's really funny. It never seems to shift in a way to their detriment. And so I'm constantly in trials having to say to people, look, you're saying this in front of the jury, but before this trial was ever going to happen, we've got what you said back at the time of the events. Which should the jury believe? What you're saying that serves your purpose now or what you said back closer to the course of events. You, you follow the predicament I'm in? I mean, it may come as a shock to you that sometimes witnesses change their stories. But they do. They talk out of both sides of their mouth in a sense. Now, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all history-based religions. They're all religions that are based not on some mystical revelation in a sense, but rather actual events in history where God has worked or intervened or processed through civilization and certain individuals. And so it's right and proper, I think, before I'm ever going to be a Muslim, I'm going to examine what the Muslim claim of history is. And I do not find that the history that's recited in the Muslim Holy Scripture, the Quran, I don't find it reliable or accurate in many critical ways. And I have some general rules for historical accuracy. One of my general rules is, absent some expressed reason why it wouldn't hold true. Those recollections that are closer in time to the actual events are more reliable than those that are later. Our memories do funny things. 
And it's well-documented in science, well-documented in psychology. Our memories will tend to reform historical events in a way that suits where we are and what we believe today. It's, it's not simply poetic license. It's something that happens deep within our psyche. So there may be some expressed reasons why it wouldn't hold true, but absent those, the recollections further back in time generally are more accurate than the recollections of today. General rule number two. The bias of someone in changing a story must weigh into the consideration of what really happened. If I've got a vested interest, you know, one of the big predicaments I'm in as a plaintiff's lawyer is if I put my plaintiff on the stand, it's common sense. Everyone knows my plaintiff has a vested interest in people believing his or her story. If they are believed and everything else falls into place, they receive compensation. If they are not believed, they don't. There's clearly a vested interest. Likewise, if if I've brought a claim against a company or or, or an insurance company or, or whatever it may be, there may be a vested interest for those witnesses as well. So you've always got to weigh the internal bias that's automatically there. When I approach this subject, I've got to readily admit I am a Christian. I'm not approaching the subject as a neutral. I'm approaching the subject as someone who's already made a choice and is practically trying to explain that choice. But I will tell you this. I constantly try and ask myself, am I correct? And I'm constantly trying to re-examine myself because if I, I have radically changed a number of my religious views in my life. There was a period of time in my life where I would have told you it is wrong to worship in corporate worship in song with instruments. And yet here I am at Champions Forest Baptist Church loving our instrumental worship and seeing it as appropriate before the Lord. That was a seismic change for me. There was a seismic change for me when I decided that an adult did not have to be immersed to be forgiven of their sins, but that we are saved by faith alone. That wasn't simply, I woke up one day and was taught the gospel. It was very much a radical shift from something I'd not only learned, but something I had had, had studiously spent a lot of time trying to understand. And what changed me was this willingness to try and look and examine my beliefs to see if I'm right or wrong. So I'm not one of these people who's just, well, you were born into a Christian home, so you're a Christian. 
I'm one of these people who certainly carries a little, um, uh, I must recognize that that bias is probably built into me. But it's one that I work assiduously, if I can use a word we don't use often. It's one that I work assiduously, very diligently to try and set aside. The reason I'm saying this is if someone's listening to this and they are a Muslim, there's an inherent difficulty in me reasoning with anyone from history. If you're reasoning with a Muslim, if I'm reasoning with a Muslim, it's very difficult because we have a tendency to read history the way we've relied upon history being. We don't like to change that. It's really hard to. But I got to tell you, if I'm looking at this objectively, if I'm able to, and I try very hard to, I can't be a Muslim simply because of historical accuracy. Now, to explain this in some more depth, what I need to do is I need to make sure we know the difference between the way the Muslims view Scripture and the way the Christians view Scripture. For the Christians, our Bible are 66 different writings or books that were composed over a period of 1,500 years. The Old Testament, we've divided them up in, in Christianity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has many different types of writings. We've got historical narrative that tell the accounts of, of the walls of Jericho coming down. Historical narrative that tell the account of the conquest of the promised land after the exodus from Egypt. Historical accounts that talk about the different kings in the divided kingdom between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. Historical accounts of King David and his sin, taking Bathsheba in adultery, killing her husband Uriah. It is a book that's got his history written and we can read it. But it's also got narratives of law where God tells Moses, these are the laws. This is what's to be done. This is the Sabbath day. These are dietary laws. These are laws about uh, 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 how you get along neighbor and neighbor. These are laws of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. These are the laws by which Israel shall be governed. We've got narratives of teaching where Moses will expound and say, if you do this, this is what will happen. If you do that, this is what will happen. We've got poetry, books and, 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 and chapters and, and verses that are written in, in Hebrew poetic form that are as majestic as any poetry that's ever been written. We've got wisdom literature that teaches you general rules for life. Spare the rod and spoil the child. These are found in the Proverbs and other things. They're not absolute rules. They're general rules. It's wisdom literature. We've got prophetic writings that speak the voice of God into the current situation, explaining the past situation, or speaking of what's coming into the future. Hear the word of the Lord. The prophets cry. 
We've even got a love drama between a husband and wife called the Song of Solomon. There are lots of different kinds of writings in the Old Testament. The New Testament, likewise, has historical accounts of the life of Christ, historical accounts of the life of the early church. It's got letters written back uh, uh, or to churches where, where uh, uh, and, and others. It's got the prophetic vision of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> so you've got all of these different types of literature. Now the church and Christianity in general will see these as inspired revelations from God. They're profitable for teaching, for training, for rebuking, for equipping us for every good work. But not all of them were supernaturally dictated. God can write the Ten Commandments with His fingers. Metaphorically. No, anthropologically. God doesn't really have... But you got it. God can say to the prophet, Thus saith the Lord, Kipi Adonai there in the Hebrew, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You can have that, but you also have Paul doing his best to write his letters in certain occasions and at certain times for certain events. And the church understands that God's Spirit was working supernaturally there in securing His message for the church and for the nations. But it wasn't always a supernatural dictation, even though the result was a supernatural message. Christianity also teaches that the Scriptures, and Judaism teaches, the Scriptures were entrusted to people to transmit and maintain. So we see human fingerprints. Even as God ensured that the message would be maintained. So we have thousands of ancient manuscripts of Old and New Testament. And you'll see spelling changes and spelling errors. You'll see people who copied and left out a word or who wrote the same line twice. It was never a Xerox machine. You'll see uh, uh, people in the process of this transmission of Scripture leaving a human fingerprint on it. That's part of the way God has worked through humanity. Humanity, the Christian church has never burned all of the Scriptures if one of them has a typo. You don't burn it. You try to fix it in the margin. In fact, we've got some scriptures where they tried to fix it in the margin and then someone else copied it and they couldn't tell if that margin fix was in the original or not. And it's, 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 it's one where we're able to put back together and see what the original scripture as originally written would have been almost without any question Although there are seven or so passages where scholars still are trying to tweak it to figure it out. But never at the sacrifice of the message. So, for example, in Romans, when Paul says, what's the advantage to being a Jew? As, as he's comparing Jew and Gentile, he says, lots from number one, to the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. See, God entrusted Scripture to humanity for us to to, to 
to continue to work through and evolve. God's redemptive message, Christian belief is, can be found in translations as well. In Christianity, we work hard to translate the Bible into all the different dialects we can, all the different languages we can. Do we lose some of the nuances of the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic when we do so? Of course we do. And that's why we have study Bibles, and that's why we have uh, commentaries, and that's why we have books on translation. But we're still able to translate into modern languages the Scriptures and know that God's redemptive message can be translated and understood. And that God's Holy Spirit can work in every individual of any language who gets those Scriptures in their language to learn God's redemptive message in Jesus Christ. Last, Christians do not worship the Bible. That would be idolatry. We worship God alone. We worship Jesus, who is the final word of God. But we do not worship the Bible. We treasure the Bible. But we do not worship it. We do not lift the Bible up to the status of God even though we exalt it as the Word of God. Quran is very different. As much as I can, I've tried to put claims about the Quran in actual Quranic language so that I don't unfairly uh, uh, characterize the views on the Quran. The Quran is seen as a revelation from the Lord of the worlds. It was sent down to Muhammad through the Holy Spirit working in his heart in a clear Arabic tongue. Muhammad was not able to read or write, we're told. He was illiterate. And so Muhammad would quote what God had revealed to him. And those quotations become the surahs or the chapters the verses of the Quran. Muhammad was given the revelation in bits and pieces during several decades of his life. And they're not collected in chronological order, but they're collected in an order supposedly also dictated by Allah. See, now the Christians will tell you that Jews and, and, and the church establish the order of these books. And so why are the letters of Paul in the order they're in? We don't know. They've been in that order for too long for us to know. But no one says God dictated it to an assemblier of the Scriptures. Our best bet is it seems to be the from big to small. I mean, it, it, you got his letters to the churches first and you got his letters to people second. We can see that. And then it kind of looks like big to small within those divisions. But we don't know. The Quran is seen as one, not only because it's in a clear Arabic tongue, the general consensus is that a translation is defective and deficient in ways that are significant. And there are groups of Muslims that believe it shouldn't even be translated. 
God chose Arabic. God gave it in Arabic. God speaks Arabic. Of course, they would say God speaks all languages. I'm not trying to insinuate otherwise. But, but God spoke Arabic in a clear Arabic tongue for a reason, and it should be in Arabic. Now, a lot of Muslims today don't read classical Arabic. And so they rely upon the imams and others to tell them what the scriptures mean. There is a worship of the Quran as an expression of God. When I say a revelation from God in God's clear terms, it is worshipped and revered in a way different than the Bible. If someone burns a Bible, you and I are going to be heart-stricken. But I don't know any of us that are going to rise to a point of violence and feel like God himself has been violated and we should kill those who have violated God. But to the extent that the Quran is just an expression of God and an extension of, of God, Allah, if you burn a Quran, you better not get caught or your life is forfeit. It's what, since we don't worship our scriptures, we worship the Lord. It, it, burning the Quran to a Muslim has the same effect that for a Christian, burning Jesus would have. Because their scripture is revered and worshipped as an extension of Allah. So here are a couple of quotes from some uh, um, common sources. They represent some common views. Who wrote the Quran is, is this one. We have presented above indisputable proof that the Quran is the word of God. The reality is that Muslims are the only ones who even claim to have an authentic scripture from God in its original form, of which not a single letter has been changed. By the way, that's somewhat challenged, uh, but I'm not going there right now. Um, most other religions admit that their scriptures are, in fact, human writings. No, that's not what we say as Christians. They are inspired by God. That doesn't make them human. If we are of the view that God would not leave us without a reliable revelation, then the mere fact that Muslims are the only ones who even claim to have an authentic revelation could attest to the truthfulness of their claim. Now, that's not logical in my book, I might add. Greg sent me an email on this, saw the same thing. Here's the claim of, of the Quran. It's that God gave revelations before. And they were the basis of the Hebrew revelation, what we'd call the Old Testament, the basis of the revelation that, that uh, we find in Scripture in the New Testament, at least with the Gospels. But over time, bad people corrupted those messages. So God had to send the Quran to get the message right. And then we know it's right because God would never allow the right message to be corrupted. Are you seeing a logical problem here? Let's see if I can map it out for you. Here it is. We have Old Testament scripture, revelation from God. This is the Muslim view. 
Old Testament revelation from God. We have New Testament, let's do Gospels, revelation from God. Then, in this, we have corruption. You follow? Then we have the Quran. depending on how you spell it. And God, it's revelation from God. And we know that because God protected it from corruption. You see, there's a problem. If God protects the Quran from corruption because it's revelation from God... Was he on vacation when these other revelations from his got corrupted? I mean, God doesn't change. If God gives a revelation and we know it's from God because it's incorruptible and he secures it down to the letter, then where was God on these revelations? If God allows these to get corrupted, what makes us think He doesn't allow that one to be. I got logical problems with it, but let's keep going. If we go back, here's what is then added. The Quran is thus not only a verifier of the sacred books of all nations, as stated above, Old Testament, New Testament, it's also a guardian over them. In other words, it guards the original teachings of the prophets of God. For as elsewhere stated, those teachings had undergone alterations. And only a revelation from God could separate the pure divine teaching from the mass of error which had grown around it. Thus, this work is was done by the Holy Quran. Hence, it's called the guardian over the earlier scriptures. So we're to believe the history in the Quran is correcting bad history that we read in the Bible. Because God secured the Quran because it was his revelation, and yet God allowed his earlier revelation to be dismissed or destroyed or dismantled? Aside from the logical inconsistency, i got to tell you, I can't go there. The Quran's got a lot of history about Abraham, a lot of history about David, A lot of history about Mary, the mother of Jesus. A lot of history about Jesus. A lot of historical figures. And we can look through and trace those and and try and weigh which one got the stories right and which didn't. But I want to concentrate on just one. I'm going to concentrate on one issue because it's a core issue and it's a clear issue. And I'm going to have to tell you, I would have to set aside my common sense to believe the Koran is presenting more reliable history than that of the Bible and other ancient writings. Here's the one passage out of the Koran I want to look at. As for their saying, this is Surah 4, verse 157. As for their saying, we've killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of God. In fact, they did not kill him. 
nor did they crucify him. But it appeared to them as if they did. The Muslim Quran teaches that Jesus was not crucified unto death. This is a claim, a historical write or rewrite, we have to decide. This is a claim that is troublesome to Muslims who intellectually dig into it. And so two views have surfaced that are the main views. One view is, okay, it looks like Jesus was crucified, but when Jesus dropped under the weight of the cross and Simon was ordered to carry it, God somehow made Simon look like Jesus and everybody mistook Simon for Jesus and Simon got crucified instead of Jesus. That's the majority view. Now, a minor view to try and get around the historical fact that Jesus was crucified, a minor view is, well, he was crucified, but he only looked dead. He wasn't crucified unto death. So when they took him down from the cross and stuck him in the tomb, it took him three days to recover. But recover he did. Now, I have trouble with this. I weigh this claim against earlier history. Remember, my general rule is, I want to go with the account that's earlier. And I go want to go with an account that doesn't really have the bias, or at least I've got to factor in the bias. Muhammad's account is written in the 600s. I want something that goes back more than 500 years to try to figure out what really happened. And I weigh this claim, they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. And I'm sorry, it's not historical. And if it's not historical, and if it's not right, then the entire Quran and the Muslim faith crumbles because it's all premised upon the idea that there's absolutely nothing historically wrong in it. The Quran's claim that they didn't that Jesus wasn't crucified runs contrary and killed to pagan, Jewish, and Christian accounts. It's not just, hey, I'm going to weigh it against the Bible. I'll go to pagan accounts. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And I'll show you Christ crucified. Tacitus. Born 56 A.D. Died around 120 A.D. Actually, we know he died 120 A.D. He was born around 56 A.D. Tacitus wrote histories of the Roman people. We've still got his histories today. Tacitus in his histories has some very clear information about Christians. Tacitus is not writing this information. 
Let me give you some. Tacitus is not writing this information. 15.44. Good chance to use Roman numerals. 15.41.44. Look at this. This is written by a Roman historian who had access to the Roman archives, who was well-placed within the Roman Empire, who was writing for the Caesars under penalty of not getting it right. And he talks about it in the following, trying to explain why it was Nero was being blamed for the burning of Rome. There was a massive burning of Rome that took place when Nero was emperor, and it just happened to destroy the private houses that he wanted destroyed so he could build his palace there. And as a result, the fire which got out of control and burned lots more of Rome, I think it burned like 10 of 12 districts or something. A lot of people not happy with Nero. So Nero's got to blame somebody. So he blames the Christians. It's probably under Nero that Paul and Peter are accordingly martyred. So to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted his culprits. I'm reading Tacitus, if you're listening to this instead of watching it. I'm reading a historian of the events living within a hundred years, writing within a hundred years of the death of Christ. To scotch the rumor, Nero substituted his culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of People loathed for their vices. Christians were reputed to be um, cannibals because they ate the body and drank the blood of this Jesus fellow. They were reported to be incestuous. Seems everyone in their whole group was a brother or a sister. You laugh? That's truly what the pagans thought, because those out not in the fellowship, those were some of the crimes. Loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, it's a nice Latin ending to Christ, the founder of the name had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. That's basically what acts the... And you take the end of the Gospels. Pontius Pilate, death penalty Jesus. He's led away, he's crucified. You, you've got it not just... One of my favorite is there is a fellow named Lucian of Samosota. Lucian of Samosota wrote in Greek. He was a Greek writer, and he was a satirist, so he was always making fun of someone. And he wrote a, 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 a book called The Passing of Peregrinus. I brought it for you. Peregrinus called himself Proteus. Peregrinus was this fellow who was a, a charlatan. And he was always going around trying to figure out how to sell someone to make a buck. He would remind you of the music man 
in The Music Man before he gets reformed there in the end by Mary and Madam Librarian and his true love. So Peregrinus would would uh, go out and try to find all these different people. Well, at one point in time, as he's been cast out and he's lost his inheritance and, and he killed his dad, and he's I mean, he's not a good guy. At one point in time, as the narrative is recounted by one of these folks, Peregrinus becomes a Christian, but he's faking it just to get soak the church which he does quite successfully, especially once he's arrested, because the church keeps going and bringing him food and everything else. Got a cushy lifestyle out of it. So, here's what it says in the process. This is not by someone who's a Christian. This is by a pagan. Written within a hundred years of the death of Christ. It was then he learned the wondrous lore of the Christians. And by associating with their priests and scribes in Palestine, he made them all look like children. He was prophet, cult leader, head of the synagogue, everything, all by himself. He interpreted and explained some of their books. He even composed some things, uh, Christian writings. They revered him as a god. They made use of him as a lawgiver. They set him down as a protector. They still worshipped the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult into the world. Jesus is crucified, according to this pagan source. Later on when he's talking, uh, uh, they call he calls Jesus the, uh, uh, let's see if I can find it here, the crucified sophist. They deny the Greek gods and by worshiping that crucified, there it is, sophist himself, and living under his laws. Sophist is the Greek word for wisdom. That crucified fellow that they think was so wise they worship, the Christians. That's a pagan view of Christianity. Clearly, Christ crucified by pagan accounts. How about Jewish accounts? The Jewish historian Josephus, writing in the first century, And I forgot to bring the Josephus book. I'm sorry. But I put this in the lesson so you can read about it there. It's from the Antiquities of the Jews. About this time, Jesus, a wise man. Now this, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher, da-da-da-da-da. Okay, that likely is an insertion by later Christians who kept this record alive. So we can take that out. I'm not here trying to prove Jesus was resurrected. I'm not here trying to prove Jesus was a good man. I'm not here trying to prove Jesus was wise. The point of this matter is, the sources show him crucified. Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had him condemned to the cross. And this idea of him resurrecting again, likely a Christian insertion from later. But nobody thinks that the crucifixion is a Christian insertion. Why should it be? The crucifixion was not just some simple, uh, gee, you hang him on the cross. Before Jesus was crucified, the lictors, L-I-C-T-O-R, that was the Roman in char- Romans in charge of, of, um, of administering the scourging. This wasn't a simple whip. The, the flagellum that was used had, I mean, 
People died simply from the whipping. The whipping that happened, the, 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 the leather that had the metal and the glass at the ends, we have accounts from Livy and others of the, the intestines falling out from this, seeing the bones, the muscles being ripped. The reason Jesus fell trying to carry the cross to Calvary is not because he was a weak man. It's because of all of the blood loss and because I, he, that he was even alive to be carrying it after the Roman scourging is something. The idea that he then gets to the cross, is put upon the cross, has a spear chunked into his side that produces more blood and water, which indicates it pierced the cardiac sac. And then they just took him off and stuck him in a dark hole in the ground for three days, and he, hey, I'm healed now, walking out. That's impossible. Not to mention the fact he'd be the only person in the history of humanity where there is a record of them being crucified, the most exquisite torture there is, and living through it. That did not happen. So we've got from Tacitus, we've got from Lucian, if we go back to the PowerPoint, we've got from Tacitus, we've got from Lucian, we've got from Josephus, We've got all of these people giving it. And then you get to the Christian writings. And forget the Gospels for a moment and what they say. Look at the writings of the Apostle Paul. Ah, I've already covered that. Paul was a Jew who did not believe in Jesus. We can date Paul's writings. Paul's writing within 15 years of the death of Jesus. Paul's writing when there are already tons of witnesses to the death of Jesus. Paul writes in Galatians 3, 1 and 2, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, I want to ask you, before your eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Who's bewitched you to make you think anything less than the fact that Jesus died for your sins? Not that he wasn't crucified. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Paul says to the Corinthians that the death of Christ on the cross is the wisdom of God. That is something that absolutely happened. That without it, we have no faith. Paul says that the crucifixion was witnessed by over 500 people who are still alive today and can talk about it. The crucifixion resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's emphatic. Paul says when we're baptized, we're baptized into the death of Christ. That Christ was crucified on our behalf. You see, that's the rub. Part of the rub. The Muslim faith has no need for Jesus to die. I believe the Muslim faith has a deficient view of God when they say that their view of God is as God is supreme. But there's not a supreme God who's able to accept fallen humanity without the price being paid for the sins of humans. And in the Muslim world, God will accept you if you follow the Muslim steps. But no price has ever been paid for your sin. And that's a very different God. That's an unholy God. If that's a God who can accept sinful people without a punishment being wrought for their sin. 
So the Muslims don't have a need for Jesus to die that they know of in their theology, though everyone has a need for Jesus to die if they want to be clean before God. So the Muslims, they, they, you know, Muhammad's got no problem saying Jesus wasn't crucified. But he was. And the only way, in light of the historical sources, and I've only looked at the first hundred years after the death of Christ, but the only way these pagan sources are wrong, these Jewish sources are wrong, these Christian sources are wrong, for me to believe that, I've got to have already decided I'm going to be a Muslim in spite of how hard it is to believe. I can't get there. It defies common sense to me. If there was a reason for Jesus not being crucified or dying, a reason for God pulling the wool over people's eyes, if there was a reason for it, and the Muslim excuse of, well, he was a prophet and God wouldn't let a prophet die. Posh. I don't buy it. I can get into that why later. But history's pretty clear. So, I'll continue, uh, God willing, next week. But let me say this for now. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree because Christ was crucified for us. He bore that curse. This wasn't just a historical fact. It's a historical fact with an eternal meaning. He did that for me. He did that to pay the price for my sins so that I could be in a relationship with God, the divine one. And I pray this week my life will show my gratitude to the Lord for that. Point for home two. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who believe, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's not only a historical event, it's a historical necessity. May it be so for me, the power of God in my life. And finally, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Heaven forbid he not die. But the fact that he did die, and I haven't even talked about the resurrection, but that power that resurrected a dead Jesus back to life is the same power at work in me and you, if we let it. Can I bless you in Jesus' name? Father, in the name of Jesus, the crucified one, the resurrected one, Lord of all, King of kings, name above all names, historically real and present with us through your spirit now. Will you in his name, Father, bless the listeners of this word today. Give them Wisdom, discernment, faith, strength, direction, purpose, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm.